As I was uh, listening in rapture to the first reading, um, and I could not get over the fact that this would be a perfect homily to talk about the culinary cook-off, because the uh, widow has her jar of uh, oil and her jug of flour that will not run dry. Um, and so, but I wouldn't do that because that would be distasteful. You know, it would be distasteful to talk about how if you vote for me and I win first place, then we get 10% back at Our Lady of Wisdom. I wouldn't do that. I wouldn't. It would also be distasteful to talk about how Father Don Bernard won't have any part in cooking his gumbo. You know, like Father Chris Cambry's gumbo will again be gluten free. Um, it'd be distasteful to mention all that in a homily. But so instead, what I'll do is talk about uh, national, it's National Vocations Week. And uh, because of that, the diocese asked that we preach on vocations. And I know I preached on vocations um, just a few months ago whenever we ordained priests in June. Uh, but I specifically want to talk about priestly vocations and just my own experience, just only three and a half years, but also uh, kind of the fears that parents might have in encouraging vocations. So um, first, just to, to talk about what we heard in the gospel, what we heard in the gospel is the core of the gospel message. Jesus is um, pointing out of the widow who only gives her last two cents. This is, we know this is the core of the gospel message because it's the last teaching that Jesus has before he starts going into his passion. And it sums up all the other teachings. So it sums up all the teachings that he's had, and it points to what he will do. And it's this, that God will take broken humanity, all that he has to offer, even though it is weak and insufficient, and that's all he desires. All he desires is our broken humanity, although it is weak and sufficient. That God doesn't desire those rich people to just put into their treasury who, you know, don't suffer at all whenever they give. Rather, he desires the last two cents of the widow, her whole livelihood. I bring that up um, because a lot of times, I think our biggest hesitation to the calling of the priesthood, it's not necessarily celibacy. It's not necessarily, you know, the, the lifestyle. It's really the fact that none of us maybe think that we're actually priest material, you know? Uh, like this, like we have a great dignity that we put on to the priesthood, and the, and the priesthood does deserve that dignity, but that perhaps um, Jesus calls humans, but he doesn't call me, you know, he doesn't call my sons. Just to illustrate some of that uh, broken uh, widowness, I tell this story all the time, um, is that whenever I was a senior in high school, it was the first time I thought about being a priest, and uh, my older brother and I, were uh, dove hunting, and I had mentioned to him, you know what, I think I would probably go to daily mass if they had the Eucharist there. He's like, of course they have the Eucharist there. That's why it's mass, you know. Um, but just to illustrate just kind of how clueless I was in general at that time. And so I started going to mass uh, every day before school. Uh, I used to go to the 620 mass in St. Pius before going to Lafayette High. And only two months later is when the first time I started thinking about becoming a priest. You know, that Jesus doesn't require, you know, a whole lot of greatness first to be, become a priest. You know, 
He only desires that a widow give her last two cents, that we give her a whole livelihood. And so Jesus can work with that. The other thing that I think is interesting in regard to the priesthood and just kind of answering some of these questions is that a lot of times we look at, man, I, like, I think it would be good that my son be a priest or I think it would be good to be a priest, but celibacy is the obstacle. Celibacy is the obstacle. And I know in my own life and in the life of many priests that priesthood was not what I discerned first. That was not the first thought that came to me in my mind. The first thought that came to me in my mind and was most appealing was the vocation of celibacy. This idea that I could give my whole heart over to the Lord in an undivided and exclusive way so as to receive him. And that the celibacy was going to be a way of magnanimity, a, a way of great soldness. That I would be able to give myself over to Jesus so I could give myself over to the whole church, whether that was going to be a priest or as a religious brother. But the celibacy is such a sign of contradiction, both for good and for bad, depending upon if we're seeking Jesus. One, the first reason why the priest is celibate is simply because Jesus is celibate. And that Jesus is celibate so that he can show the great love of God to the world. Jesus is celibate so he can show the great marriage that awaits man in heaven with God. And so this celibacy is not something that shows like, yeah, you know what? If you want to be a priest, you're just going to have to suck it up and be celibate. But the celibacy, the celibacy should, should show the great, um, the great magnanimity of God, the great heartness of God. There's a story uh, I was trying to find it in greater detail uh, before this homily of this chieftain that was being evangelized in, in, in indigenous, with an indigenous tribe in a remote area. And all these products and missionaries came to him and tried to, you know, convert him so that the whole tribe would convert. And none of, none of the Protestant missionaries could get him to convert to Christianity. But then finally, when a priest had come, almost immediately recognizing that his celibacy was something that was real and that he lived, he converted. As he recognized that to give up something so great on this side of heaven meant that there was something on the other side of heaven. That there was something on the other side of heaven. And that celibacy is first and foremost a witness to the kingdom of heaven. That there's something greater here. There's something greater than the most natural good here. The other thing um, that I've been continually surprised by as a priest, I remember it's just a conversation that I had with my brother um, before entering seminary, the summer before. I just had like a summer job working construction. And, uh, and I would get up every morning very early and pray a holy hour, but it was just kind of mundane work and saying like, I just feel like my life is like, just doesn't have a lot of meaning right now. Like I'm not doing anything very purposeful. And that now as a priest, that if I think about what I do, then it's, it's an overabundance of meaning. It's too much to handle. You know, I, like, whenever being my first two years of uh, a priest in Growbridge, like, distinctly remember waking up in, uh, on, on Monday mornings for the 6 a.m. confessions and, like, wiping the sleepies with one hand and then absolving 
uh, the sins of someone and saving them from the fires of hell and reconciling them to the life of the Trinity with the other. You know, like that's it. If you think about it enough early in the morning, that's a bit overwhelming. Uh, you might want to go back to sleep. So this, this unquestioned significance of the life of the priest, this unquestioned significance of the life of the priest, but at the same time, upon further meditation, this unquestioned peace that accompanies the life of the priest. And it's for the same reason. It's that what the priest does is what Jesus does. And because what the priest does is what Jesus does, it is unquestionably significant. And because what the priest does is what Jesus does, then it's unquestionably victorious. And that there's great peace. That I know I can, what I'm doing is what Jesus is doing, and so it's his work. And so if someone denies me, it's because, hopefully it's because they deny Christ and, and not just me, that I'm not an obstacle in the way. And it also allows for a great humility. It doesn't cause great humility. You know, I'm still private. But it allows for a great humility. Because recognizing that this is Jesus' work. This is because what the priest does in his most sacred and profound actions is simply what Jesus does. That the priest offers his body and blood, soul and divinity, as Jesus offers his body, blood, soul and divinity for the communion of the church. That the priest absolves sins because Jesus forgives us of our sins. And so because of that, the work of the priest is unquestionably significant, and yet there's an abundance of peace that tends to accompany it. There's also, because of that, the deep joy that accompanies the priesthood. A lot of times, like, uh, I guess I'll frame this. In 2003, whenever the Boston priest scandals hit, what ended up happening was this um, priest, Monsignor Stephen Rossetti, decided, I'm going to conduct a survey to see why priests are unhappy. Why priests are unhappy. So he went to, I think, 122 different dioceses. He uh, interviewed a whole bunch of priests within those dioceses. And what he found was that actually 90% of priests were happy, while 10% of, while a fraction of those 10% were either unsure if they were happy or were unhappy. That's, that's pretty good, considering uh, in comparison to marriage that the divorce rate is about 50%. You know, that priests are unquestionably happy. And why is that? It's because if a priest has faith, in Jesus, that if it's not a faithless priest, then everything he does has a little flavor of the victory of Jesus. That everything he does has a little flavor of the resurrection of Christ. And that he knows that his life is filled with abundant meaning. There's, I've, I've used this quote maybe in, uh, with this mass crowd before, but I can't get over it because it's like my favorite quote and it's just, just bad to the bone. But uh, G.K. Chesterton says, in his book, Orthodoxy, that at the very end, it's the last paragraph of his book, um, the one emotion that we never see in the life of Christ is this. First, we see his anger when he turns the tables in the temple. We see his sorrow when he weeps at the tomb of Lazarus. But the one emotion that we never see in the Gospels of Jesus is his joy. Never do we see clearly that Christ rejoices. And that's because it is too sacred for us to see. That in a sense, because a lot of times the only way way that we relate to priests is a lot of times the only way that we relate to Jesus. 
is that we just bring to priests our sufferings in the confessional. We bring to uh, priests our sufferings, you know, whether it's in an anointing or just, or just in the context of spiritual direction. That we never really get to see the joy of the priest. But in those moments where there's kind of the greatest suffering, there's also the greatest peace and the greatest joy that a faith-filled priest experiences. Because he knows that the res- where the death of Jesus is happening, the resurrection is happening as well. There's great joy and great significance that cannot be shook. And so the joy of Christ is something that abides in the priest in a particularly unique way. And so because of that, the priest can enjoy, the faith-filled priest can enjoy a great intimacy with Christ as well. That because the priest is celibate, at times he does experience loneliness. But loneliness is a regular feature of human life. Loneliness is something that we all experience. Because loneliness isn't caused for a lack of human contact. It's caused from a lack of love and a lack of tenderness. Sometimes from a lack of human contact, sure. But the priest can definitely experience loneliness whenever he experiences rejection. Um, And if that's the case, then he experiences loneliness in a sense, but also communion in another sense. Because he experiences communion with Jesus, who was rejected at times. But... The priest is not lonely in the sense, like, I think we, we get loneliness backwards again. And we think loneliness is just a lack of human contact, rather than a lack of love. That, again, marriages, you know, 50% of them, at least in America, end in divorce. And that loneliness happens within that marriage, even though people go to sleep in the same bed every night next to one another. They experience loneliness next to each other because there's a lack of tenderness. There's a lack of love. As a priest, again, because it is hard to distinguish between a priest and Jesus. Like, you see this, like, all the time with, like, kids and stuff, you know? Like, uh, whenever the priest is confessing the Eucharist, like, the parent is like, see, look, that's Jesus. Then the kid comes out of Mass and is like, you know, hello, Jesus, you know, Father Jesus, right? Um, But a lot of times, because we can't, it's, you know, uh, because we relate to the priests, we relate to Jesus, that, like, I get way more love than I deserve, you know? Uh, like, loneliness is not a regular feature of my life. Like, if I was just Stephen, you know, and outside of Mass, you'd be like, eh, that guy's not that interesting, you know? Uh, I'm not going to talk to him. But, but Father Stephen is different, and it's not because anything within me, it's just because the priest is so, is in the person of Christ, the head. You know, he's so closely connected to Jesus. That the loneliness of the priest is very different from the loneliness of someone who is just simply alone by rejection, you know, or someone who is alone because um, they are unloved, right? Uh, that's it's not the same. And so, again, as a priest, um, loneliness is something that, like, I experience, but it's not something that I experience uh, very often at all. And also, not something I experience like the loneliness of, for instance, of someone who might be in despair or rejected or in sin. With that as well comes the worthwhile suffering of the priesthood. That while, there is, while we all experience suffering, that if the priest is faith-filled, then the suffering he experiences, again, is, are the birth pains, in a sense of uh, the, the suffering that others bring to the priest. 
but those birth pains of, of new life, of resurrection, of repentance, or someone passing into heaven at the anointing of the sick, or uh, to see someone be released from the chains of slavery of sin and to be empathetic with that person, that the suffering is worthwhile suffering. So, kind of in conclusion, kind of bringing all of this and, and transposing it onto some of the great fears that parents may have in encouraging their sons to be priests, or at least allowing God to have permission to call them to the priesthood. I just want to, I want to look at those, and there are four particularly that come to mind. First, the celibacy and loneliness thing. You know, and again, that the priest is celibate so that he can have a great heart, not so that he can have a narrow heart. And that there are always families in the parish who adopt the priest. That, um, you know, there are most nights, I can probably count um, on my calendar, maybe one to two nights a month where I'm actually alone. You know, normally I am with people as a priest. And that this celibacy offers then a greater espousal to the church. Um, so great magnanimity, right? Um, the, the second thing, I think, is the desire for our sons to have a successful career, is that perhaps we experience success and significance in our own lives, and we want our sons to experience that same thing. And that, really, if we think about it, and perhaps we can think that the priesthood, if we think of the priesthood is not a significant thing, then we have a real problem with Jesus. Because what we're telling Jesus is that I don't think it's significant that you forgive me of my sins, and I don't think it's significant that you offer your body and blood to me so I can be communed with, with God the Father. If that's what we think, then we don't have a problem with the priesthood. We have a problem with Jesus Christ, because we don't think that our salvation is that important. But if we do think our salvation is that important, then there's... I mean, is there, an, is there an industry, you know, that provides a better, a greater good than the body of Christ and, and eternal salvation and forgiveness of our sins? And if there is, then I would like to buy some stock in it and start investing. But, yeah, so, like, there's this eternal significance and purpose that the priest gets to enjoy because it's the work of Christ. Um, third is this unhappiness that a priest may experience. And again, going back to that study that the, like 90% of priests have found to be happy and that the priest's happiness does depend upon his own faith. That if, if a priest is not in a state of grace or does not have a healthy prayer life, then yeah, he's going to be a sad priest because nothing in his life will make sense. And that, yeah, there are priests who are sad men and it's probably because they're struggling in their own life of faith. But because the priest has the spouse of the church, and because he can enjoy a special intimacy with Jesus, and because he does do the significant things that Jesus does, you experience profound happiness, a profound joy, a joy of a hope in the resurrection. And then the fourth thing, and which is a legitimate fear, is this idea of losing a son. That if my priest become, if my son becomes a priest, then I will lose him as a son. And there is a real sense in that, right? That um, Christ calls his disciples to leave the family, in a sense. And that even though, like, you know, the priests can be 
within the diocese are not far from the parents. There's just their relationship has changed because the priest's heart belongs to the whole church. But what I've found in my own family, and I've I've heard in many others, is that whenever a son leaves the seminary or maybe a daughter to the religious life, that God does not leave them empty-handed, but in a sense, Jesus takes the place of that son or that daughter within the home. That because the family desires to follow their children where they go, where they end up being is following Jesus. There's a desire to follow Jesus where he goes. There's a beautiful, um, there's this one man, his son had entered seminary, his son had since left seminary, and he had, we had gone hunting to his place in Texas, and he wanted his son to take on the ranch, he wanted him to, um, to be the inheritor of uh, this, this ranch and also this uh, duck hunting club that he had, and he was so angry with God, so angry with him that he had taken away his son. And he started praying with Zebedee, you know, who gave away two sons uh, to go and, and follow Jesus. And he thought to himself, did Zebedee support the mission or did he not? You know, did Zebedee support the church or did he not? And it's a beautiful thing to see uh, parents follow their sons in a sense to the church, follow their sons uh, to seek the face of Christ. So we just ask that, uh, being like the, the poor widow, that we can just offer what we have to Jesus, to just give Jesus permission to call, to give Jesus permission to call, because we know that Jesus loves the church too much to institute a priesthood that is bound to fail. And a lot of times we look at it that way, that the big problem with the church is the priesthood, and that Jesus wants to be known in the church. He establishes the priesthood. Why is he going to establish a priesthood that's bound to fail if he wants the church to know him intimately? So we ask that the Lord can give us that generosity of spirit and that a lack of generosity could not be, or a lack of faith could not be the reason why there is a lack of holy priests in the Diocese of Lafayette.